morning, Mosaic. Good morning. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend, um, enjoying all this rain and hoping your children don't destroy your home. That's just me, but uh, maybe that's you too. Um, for those of you whose kids are grown, you're like, praise the Lord, those days are over. And uh, the rest of us are just hoping that the studs are still standing when this rain stops, okay? So today we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel, and we're in chapter 2. And last week we began our study, and we saw that the book of Daniel was written in 603 B.C., and it is in the section of literature in the Scripture known as exilic literature. In other words, this happens or takes place during the time of the exile. And so the, the children of Israel, the people of God, have been exiled as a result of their sin, and they're choosing to disobey God and not follow Him. And as a result, they are taken into captivity. We saw that Daniel... Uh, was one of 10,000 or so Israelite young men who were about 15 years of age that were taken into captivity. So the way that the captivity would take place is that first uh, a country would come in, a nation, a powerhouse like Babylon would come in, overtake the country, and because they did not want to overburden their own resources to... Uh, bring them all back and to house them and feed them. They would leave them there, but they would take the people of influence, of power, of means and ability to grow and understand and be uh, people of influence, and they would bring them back to Babylon or bring them back to the conquering nation, and they would educate them. They also took away their ability to have children, so we, we saw that these men were made eunuchs and Daniel and his three friends are given new names. And so we saw last week that this book is written in three in two different languages. So chapter 1 is written in Hebrew and chapters 2 through 9 are written in uh, Aramaic and then chapters or sorry chapters uh, 1 through 7 are written in Aramaic and then chapters 8 through the end of the, ch- uh, the book, are written in Hebrew. So we saw last week that faithfulness to God looks like being different, and that Daniel and his three friends, they practiced monotheism, worshiping God, in a pluralistic nation like Babylon. And we saw that they chose not to choose the path that many of us think is the path, which is either to assimilate with culture, or to separate from culture. They chose to follow God in the midst of a pluralistic culture, and they chose to not either assimilate or separate, but to participate for the glory of God and to see the transformation of people. So Daniel and his friends, they are given Babylonian names. The purpose of giving them names is to try to shift their identity away from God, and yet they stand up in the face of this. They maintain their God-given identity. They also not only are given new names, but they're given a new language. So they study the language of the Chaldeans, they, they study the language of the people, and they excel. And so even in the midst of this culture, they excel. 
And then they are given work in the Babylonian palace. And they do so as faithful servants to God. What's beautiful about this text, particularly the text that we're going to look at today in Daniel chapter 2, is we see what it looks like to follow God behind enemy, behind enemy lines, not outside of enemy lines. Daniel shows us what it looks like to follow God in the culture, not outside of the culture. Daniel shows us the clear solution. And he's going to give a clear interpretation and a clear solution to the problem that the king is facing here in this chapter. So, we're going to see immediately from the text that the king is in trouble. He's in trouble, he's in the second year of his reign, and he is in turmoil. So let's read verse 1-13, through 13, and then we'll dive in, talk a little bit, and then we'll continue on. We have 49 verses today, so I hope you brought a lunch, and we're going to talk for about three hours. Just kidding. We have 30 minutes and 41 seconds, okay? So chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Anybody ever been there? Dreams. Sleep leaves you, right? Just need a little nighttime tea, maybe a little uh, melatonin. But it leaves him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. King answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. Now you know you're in trouble when the king says right out the gate, My word is firm. My word is firm. And then he's going to show them how firm his word is. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time. Right? This is what happens to many of us in middle school. Right? In middle school, the teacher asks us a question, and we rephrase the question, or we say, could you say that again? Or could you repeat that? I didn't quite catch it. In other words, you're trying to gain some time. You're trying to buy. You're trying to stall. These guys are trying to stall for time. This is what they said. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So that the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So, Not only are these guys in trouble, but Daniel and his friends are in trouble because they are studying with this group of people. They are lumped into this group of people. And from what it appears from the text, they are not there in that moment, but they are being represented by this group of magicians, enchanters, and Chaldeans. And so we're going to see from the text clearly this morning a big idea, and it's this, that the wisdom of God and the kingdom of God are greater than than anything in this world. The wisdom of God and the kingdom of God are greater than anything in this world. And we're going to see this right at the get-go with this verse that we just read, these verses we just read. We see the powerlessness of the wisdom and kingdoms of this world. The king's got so much going on. He's in the second year of his reign, Trouble is coming in, and he is now having to face decisions he's never faced before. And now this, these dreams are coming upon him, and he is sleepless. The chapter opens up with him waking up in a cold sweat from a dream. He's not only had this dream once, but he's had it over and over and over to the point now where it's a nightmare. It's not just a dream. And every time he has it, he gets more and more upset. Have you ever been there? Can you relate to this? At this point in the narrative, we do not know the nature of the dream. In fact, the Chaldeans don't know the nature of the dream, and they are trying to bargain for him to tell him what the nature of the dream is. And the reason why they're doing this is because the Chaldeans... Here's what they did. They had a book that helped them to interpret dreams. It's kind of like our modern-day horoscope. And so here's what they would do. They would would say, well, tell me the details of your dream, and we will give you an interpretation. Not because they had some kind of supernatural wisdom, but because they had a book that they could refer to. And the answers that they were going to give were still not going to suffice. The wisdom that they had, the wisdom of this world, could not solve the problems that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And the same thing is true for you and me. The problems that we're facing, we need God's wisdom. The wisdom of this world is not going to solve the problems that we have. The greatest problems that we have, the greatest problems that Nebuchadnezzar had, required the wisdom of God to solve. And so, it wasn't going to be a horoscope that's going to fix their problems. It wasn't going to be a fortune cookie. In fact, if the king would have given them 
a little piece of it, these are the kinds of things that they would have said to him. They would have said things like this. Well, today you should avoid people who drain you. Right? It's just like, what does that mean? Right? So I'm born in April, so I'm a a Taurus. So let me go over here to this little book and let me see. Stay away from people who drain you. And then I walk around all day long and I'm like, "Mm, does that person drain me? Does that person drain me? It's not true wisdom. Maybe they would have said something like this. Your patience will one day be rewarded, king. That's what it means. What does that mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's simple, rudimentary, elementary wisdom trying to pass off as a plan for your life. And the king sniffs this out. He understands what the game that they're trying to play. The game they are trying to play is to give you just a little bit to try to get you to get a little bit more. And he knows this. You see, the king gets wise to the foolishness of this, and he says, this isn't working. I don't trust you. And if you can't get it right, then I'm going to kill you. You see, these Chaldean men of wisdom tell the king that there's not a man on earth. There's not a man on earth that can meet your demands. In one sense, he's right. There's not a man. There's not a human man that can meet the demands of this king. What the king is asking for is theologically impossible for the gods of Babylon. What they are asking for, they are incapable of getting in touch with because they do not know Yahweh. You see, for all the resources of the wisdom that the king Nebuchadnezzar had at his disposal, in the end only produces frustration, insecurity, and anxiety. And that anxiety leads him to be anger-filled. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what the wisdom of this world does for us. It leaves us insecure. It leaves us angry. It leaves us filled with anxiety. And when we rely upon the wisdom of this world like King Nebuchadnezzar does, to address the big theological questions of the future, it leaves us disappointed. It leaves us disappointed and wanting more. This is our lived experience if we're honest when we rely upon the wisdom of this world. It can't ultimately solve the problems that we're facing. It provides assurances about a future that are vague to the point where we are left with anxiety. It's essentially the dichotomy of what James talks about when it comes to wisdom. That the kind of wisdom that we need is wisdom that comes from above. So the king is absolutely right when he hears the Chaldeans say, there is not a man on this earth that can provide the wisdom that you need. And this is what you and I need to see and need to embrace from this story for us thousands of years later, that there is not a wisdom in this world that will suffice for the insecurities and the anxiety and the anger 
that we have. That we require wisdom from above. You see, Neb's wisdom, King Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom, results in jealousy and ambition and disorder. The result of not getting the answers he wants is that he is willing to kill, to take life. To suffice the anger and the disappointment and the anxiety that he's facing. The question is, why can you and I not write him off? Because we learn about his heart that our hearts are symptomatic in trying to build our own kingdoms. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to build up his own kingdom. He's, he's in the second year of his reign, and now he's entering sleeplessness because he is trying to hold it all together. He's trying to keep it all together, his own self, and it leads to sleeplessness. You see, we can't simply write him off because if we're honest, when we find ourselves in these sleepless moments, trying to answer the big questions of life apart from God, we realize the powerlessness of that. You see, Nebuchadnezzar isn't just some lone example of a Babylonian king who lives in some point of history that we can write off. This text helps us to see that his heart is showing us a symptom of something greater, and that is our desire to find wisdom on our own. It's our desire to build a kingdom for ourselves. And ultimately, the wisdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon would not be satisfactory. One of the questions in this passage that we should ask ourselves over and over is when I get angry, when I'm overcome with anxiety, when I am deeply insecure, why is that? Why is that? What has led me to this point? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often are focused on building our own kingdom. And your shoulders and my shoulders aren't broad enough for that. Our shoulders aren't broad enough to carry that kind of weight. To prop up our own kingdoms. To carry our own insecurities and give ourselves our own wisdom. We are not powerful enough. And ultimately, neither was Nebuchadnezzar. The truth is, the wisdom of this world and the kingdoms of this world are unsatisfactory. They're unsatisfactory when it comes to answering the big questions of life. It cannot comfort us during the dark nights of the soul. It cannot, in the end, help us. But rather, it just simply exposes the weakness of the wisdom of this world. When we seek the wisdom of this world, we're left with questions like this. Will God have His day? Will He show up again? Will God's wisdom come? Will His kingdom survive? This is where we see Daniel show us what it looks like to trust in the wisdom of God and the power of God in spite of our life being threatened. Let's look at verse 13 through 30. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions 
to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those guys we're going to get introduced again to next week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel goes to his friends, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the kings, the, to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered, the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven. I love this. That was a great place to say amen. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries had made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. There's so much in this. We don't have time to unpack this, but what we see here in this passage is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the kingdom of God being described. That's what we see. I love how descriptive it shows us what Daniel does. Daniel 
in the face of being killed, here's what he does. He goes to his friends, and he doesn't panic. He doesn't scream. He doesn't be like, oh, no, we're going to die. He says, let's pray. Let's pray to the God of heaven who has all wisdom. He has the ability to answer and solve and bring solutions and bring wisdom. He shows us what to do in this world when we have sleepless nights. Pray. He shows us. But he doesn't just pray when God does answer and give him the interpretation. He doesn't do what you and I would normally do, which is to run right in and give the answer. He worships. He prays and he worships. Daniel praises God for his being. He praises God for his work of provision. He praises God for his work within the specific situation. Even in exile, even under the weight of the biggest known cultural and military power at that time, Daniel isn't enamored. He isn't enamored with Babylon. He's enamored with God. His gaze and his prayer turns immediately to the Lord who gives. This is so amazing. It's amazing what he does here. He worships the God of heaven. And then he goes in and tells the truth. He prays that God will give him wisdom. He worships the God of heaven. And he goes in and tells the truth. And he does it from a position of humility. He asks Arioch for permission. He's not bold in the way that we think of boldness and making it all about him. He's bold in the way that makes it all about God. He steps into that moment and he just simply tells the truth. Many of us fight, face these same situations in our job. And the book of Daniel is so practical. You say, I don't know what I'm going to do if someone at my work asks me this question. What should I do? Exactly what Daniel does. Pray to the God of heaven. Worship the God of heaven who has the ability to give you all the wisdom and then go in and with love and kindness tell the truth. That's what he tells us to do. That's what he shows us how to do. It's very similar to what Paul does as he stands up before Athens in Acts 17. Do you remember this story? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. that They should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far off from one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. 
Daniel shows us what it looks like to give this kind of witness that there is a God in heaven. And maybe you're here today and you are stressed with anxiety and sleeplessness and this word is for you, not just for King Nebuchadnezzar. That there is a God in heaven. Maybe you've tried to make a relationship work and you've tried to fix what is broken and it's failed and you feel like there's no hope. I've got good news for you. There's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven. Maybe you have a child who's wayward. Maybe you have a child you're not quite sure if they're going to turn out okay. Here's a word for you this morning. There's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven. You need to embrace this. Maybe you're trying to overcome an addiction. You're here, and you're just like, man, I'm just trying to hold it together. Maybe you live at the shelter, and you're just slipping in, and you're trying to hear something that's going to make you feel better. You need to hear this word this morning. There's a God in heaven who loves you, who has a plan for your life, who got you to be here through His sovereign power and His will. And the enemy's word to you that says there's no point of going on is a lie. Why? Because there is a God in heaven who has ordained your days, who has created you, who doesn't make junk, who says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in spite of the mistakes that you have made that have brought you to the place that you're in right now. Maybe you're disappointed in politics like me. And you're dismayed by our leaders and Democrats disappoint you and Republicans disappoint you. And here's the thing. You think if you were in power that you wouldn't disappoint us. You need to understand that there is a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven who sets up kings and kingdoms. Just like this passage says. And He is all-powerful. And His plans will not be thwarted. Do you believe that? Wouldn't that change everything if there was a God in heaven? Well, there is. There is, and His wisdom will not end, and His kingdom will never end. The reality of this caused Daniel to give praise to God and declare the truth. Publicly, in spite of the possible consequences. He could have gone in to the king in a different way than this. He could have assimilated to the Chaldean ideas and said, well, let me take out the the little enchanter's book first. He doesn't do that. He appeals immediately to the one thing that has the ability to solve all the king's problems, and that is Yahweh, the one true God. And he declares the truth about him because his wisdom, the wisdom of God, and the kingdom of God would never come to an end. I have five minutes to cover one of the most controversial passages. Verse 31 through 49. Verse 31 through 49, we get a picture of what's going on in this dream and why it's so scary. Let's read it together. This image you saw, O king, behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces. It became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, yet the third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. As you saw the feet and toes, partly of clay, potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw, iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the king's The God of heaven, there He is again, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and shall nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall be it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. That's a really, really important point. Doesn't fall on his face and pay homage to God. He's just thankful for the wisdom. And, the, and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. King answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over, all the, over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So, very quickly, we have this colossal image. The head is made of gold. The text tells us exactly who that is. That's the kingdoms of Babylon. Their kingdom would last from 628 B.C. to about 539 B.C. He says, you're this head of gold. Why gold? Well, the kingdom of Babylon was known for gold. So the king's his, his uh, throne was made of solid gold. And they built walls. That's what they were known for. 
Sound familiar, right? So they built walls, and some of those walls were 90 uh, miles long and in places 375 feet high and were made of gold. So I think they liked some gold. And uh, historians say that Neb was obsessed with it, and God tells him through Daniel that his kingdom is going to end. Then we come to the chest and arms made of silver. This represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're going to find out about them in Daniel chapter 5 when we get to that section. And so the Medo-Persians are going to come in and they're going to conquer Babylon. In fact, the book of Esther and Nehemiah were written during that time period. So that is the chest and arms made of silver. Then we have the belly and thighs made of bronze. Now, I want to be careful to not say something that Scripture doesn't say here. So most scholars say that this represents Greece, the superpower that conquered Medo -Persian, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire in around 220 B.C. And this was led by a guy named Alexander the Great. And he did this by the time he was 30. So pretty sharp dude. And he was the thighs and belly made of bronze. Why? Because bronze was what most of the weapons were made during that time period. And it was like how they rose to power. They were able to rise to power because of their military might. The legs of iron, which represent Rome, the kingdom that conquered Greece in 63 B.C., and there's two of them because there's the east and the west. So the east was uh, ruled by, uh, headquartered in Constantinople, and the west was the Roman Empire, headquartered in Rome. And Babylon's rule lasted 70 years. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted 200 years. The Greek one lasted 200 years. And... Uh, the east part of the Roman Empire lasted 500 years, and the west part was 1,500 years. So pretty crazy. But we get to the very end. And it says there are feet mixed with iron and clay, and these are the things that haven't happened yet. So this is prophecy that the book of Revelation talks about. And these two are ten kingdoms that are mentioned in Revelation as a part of a future event. And uh, some of you uh, like to geek out on that kind of stuff, and that's great. And I just encourage you not to stay there a real, real long time uh, because you'll find yourself trying to interpret who these ten are. And at the end of the day, this text shows us exactly what's really important. What's really important is the stone that's not cut by human hands. And it's the stone that the builders rejected that's talked about in Matthew chapter 21 and in Luke chapter 20. Jesus talks about this. And this is Himself. This is Him. He is going to come and set up His kingdom. And it will not ever end. And He, though rejected by men, is going to be worshipped by all. At the same time, when it seems like His kingdom is a kingdom of humiliation, He is also a stone who is exalted who will crush all other human kingdoms. He is a stone not made with human hands. You say, how do you know that? Jesus was born of a virgin. It was not made, he was not made with human hands. It was supernatural. God caused Him to be born. 
his son to be born by supernatural means. Why? Because he has no beginning and no end. He is the God who is worthy of our worship. He is the God in heaven. Interestingly enough, the stones of the temple, they were not made by human hands. When they built the temple, they had to go find stones that fit, that God formed, that He shaped. Why? Because it points to this person, this man, Jesus, who would come. You see, in this dream, the rock started out small. It eventually grew into a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic sorry, mountain that filled the whole earth. And the same thing is true with Jesus' kingdom. It starts out small like a mustard seed. But eventually, it will fill the whole earth. A new heaven and a new earth. You see, there is a God in heaven. And He sent a rock to the earth called Jesus. And He will destroy every false kingdom made by man. And bring low every tower erected by mankind to be near Him. He will bring everything low. Because independence from Him, independence apart from Him, whether it's wisdom or earthly power or might, will always fail. And you can choose whether you will build your life on that rock or be crushed by it. But you can't have it both. That's what Daniel's saying to him. Your kingdom will come to an end because you're trying to build it on your own. And this kingdom built by God is going to come in and crush it. So the question is, how do we respond to a message like this? Well, we have two choices. We can respond like King Nebuchadnezzar and simply settle for relief. That's what he does. He gets this message for Daniel and he's just thankful that the dreams don't bother him anymore. And this is what some of you do. You come in here week after week and you hear the good news of Jesus preached and you say amen and you clap your hands and you sing, but you don't have a relationship with him. You are not a part of his kingdom and you go away still left with anxiety, fear, and insecurity. And even though today in hearing those good, the good news and singing about Jesus, it just simply suffices you for a little bit and it just brings momentary relief and you're choosing to be just like King Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately your kingdom's going to end. It's going to fail. It's going to fall apart. Or you can respond like Daniel. And you can actually exercise trust like he does. He trusts God in prayer. I know there's a God in heaven who's going to provide the wisdom that we need so that we won't die. So he employs his friends to pray and ask God for this wisdom. What is this? This is trust. This is dependence upon the one true God who can solve all of our problems. And then what does he do? The most natural thing that any of us can do in response to knowing who God is is to worship Him. He worships Him. And then he encourages others to trust and believe in the God of heaven. Embracing the reality that the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. This is why Jesus, when He encourages His disciples to pray, he encourages them to say these words. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
What is this? He knows when we pray these prayers, it's exercising trust that God's kingdom will not end. That my kingdom will not suffice. And that His love is eternal. And His his power is infinite. You see, there's only one wise decision. And it's to build your life on the rock not made with human hands. That's the most natural, the most important, the most sensible thing that you and I could do is to build our life on that rock. Why? Because the book of Isaiah, as we conclude, tells us exactly why. Isaiah 2.17 says this, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In other words, if you trust your own wisdom, like Nebuchadnezzar did, trust the wisdom of this world to solve your problems, your anxiety, and your fear, in the end, if you trust that alone, you'll be humbled, you'll be brought low, and you'll be eternally separated. But if you trust in Him, and believe in Him, just like Daniel, you'll be exalted. You'll be exalted. You may not get that promotion, you may not get that job, you may not get that thing here on this earth, but when you stand before His presence, you will be exalted. Why? Because He wants to exalt His work in your life. Because He is a God in heaven who is worthy of all of our worship. You believe this this morning? You trust in this? We have an opportunity to respond this morning to this message through the Lord's Supper. I love this because it's a picture of what Christ has done for us in being that stone that the builders rejected. I mean, think about it. How small and insignificant these little things are. This wafer that tastes like nothing. And this juice in this plastic cup that's made of really like nothing. It's insignificant. But it represents something so significant. Just like the stone. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. That his body was broken for us. That he became rejected. So that you would never be. By putting your faith and trust in him. His blood was shed for you. That he was beaten and bruised. And a crown of thorns placed on his head. And nails put into his hand. And beating taken across his back. And his blood, all of it was shed for you and I. Why? This was the path to build his kingdom. Not with human wisdom. Not with human wisdom. Not a kingdom built by hands. Not earthly hands. But hands outstretched. And surrender to the Father's will. And when we believe and trust in him, we become a part of a kingdom that will never end. So we get to celebrate this this morning. Would you stand with us? If you're here and you don't know Jesus, we'd encourage you to not partake of this meal. This is a uniquely Christian meal for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. For those of you who, who have put your faith and trust in Jesus, we'd encourage you to partake of this meal. We'd encourage you to reflect upon your life and sin and things like that and make sure that there is a 
clear relationship between you and God, that you're not harboring anything in your life, we'd encourage you to think about that before you come forward and take these elements. The scriptures tell us that if we don't do that, that we actually bring judgment upon our lives. We take for granted the grace of God. We should never do that. So we should take a moment to reflect. But as we do that, we have an opportunity to celebrate the God of heaven who has come, who has lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved so that we could have everlasting life and be a part of his kingdom.